Welcome to the next installment of the SUS News Podcast Series, where we interview newsmakers and discuss the news and applications relevant to the global unmanned technologies community. I'm your program host, Patrick Egan, and this is part two of a three-part interview with Andrew Shelley from Aviation Safety Management Systems. We continue our discussion about his white paper, A Model of Human Harm from Following Unmanned Aircraft. Implications for UAS regulation. Some of these uses require people to be like licensed, you know. And uh, so here, you know, and and uh, and I like you know all the drone app manufacturers, mapping and land surveying. You know, okay. Well, what does that mean? The nomenclature makes me sound like a professional. I ran down to the electronics store. I bought a consumer drone. I skipped. You know, all the professional training of how to become a land surveyor. But I'm out there now, and I'm calling myself a land surveyor. Well, in the state of California, people are licensed. And you have to be a licensed land surveyor to call yourself a land surveyor or a map maker. Yes. And I've been saying for a while with people, it's like, you can call yourself whatever you want to call yourself. You know, you could be Santa Claus for whatever, you know. But soon as this comes down to something where there's litigation and, you know, hey, you know, my neighbor's, he put a fence on my property. Well, how do you know that? Well, I had this drone land surveyor guy come out and he took pictures and told me, you know. And then that's where the, uh, the wheels start coming off the cart. And, uh, you know, you've started this, this, this chain reaction and you don't know what you're talking about. You're not an expert. Yeah, I, I think people don't quite, don't quite appreciate how important that expertise is as soon as the legal process comes, comes to bear. Well, you know, I, uh, it's the same deal as people, you know, wanting to do, you know, uh, roof inspections and, you know, building inspections and this inspection. Okay. Sounds good. You want to go do that? Um, you know, are are you licensed? And not even are you licensed. Do you have insurance? You know, uh, errors and omissions. Because, and I tell people this too about the liability thing. I usually tell them, you know, maybe your wife is cooler than my wife. But when the sheriff's knocking at the door and they're seizing my house, I'm going to have a little marital strife. You know, yes, <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to be pretty. Okay. And that's because I didn't cross the T's and dot the I's of business, blah, blah, blah. I'm sure a lot of that'll get sorted out as we move forward. And that well, go ahead. I think, yeah, I think that's actually re- really important. And it's important for somebody to be beating that drum uh, to, so that we don't have a, a whole industry of, of drone professionals who, who have short-circuited that and, and sort of bypassed all the, the normal rigours of business and then suddenly find themselves in strife. Um, it might be painful, it might be not what they wanted to be in business for, but it's a crucial part of being in business is making sure you have the expertise in what you're talking about, making sure you've got the insurance. Now, I recently purchased a house and one of the standard things we do in New Zealand is have a, a condition in the purchase agreement of a, a building inspection. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, you get a, a licensed builder to do that building inspection. You don't just get someone with a drone to, to fly around the roof and see is the roof okay. The builder who knows about construction of roofs gets up on his ladder and has a close look to check is everything okay with the roof. Right. Well, and, you know, that's where I got that. I mean, I got started in this whole industry as I was a builder. 
And I was also a certified home inspector, you know. And uh, I got out of the home inspecting game real quick because really it's just a a liability thing. Just like you said, you bought a house and you bring some guy in and this guy's kind of your uh, liability filter. And, uh, you know, we had at the time we were having a big problem here in the United States with mold. And mold remediation can turn into a hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, incident to clean up. So, uh, you know, had to have errors and omissions insurance, and it was $5,000 and blah, blah, blah. So other people, oh, you know, I'm going to do roof inspections. Well, you know what? You miss something, a piece of flashing or, you know, um, something else, a a missing broken shingle or whatever. And you could be staring down the barrel of a bill of of $200,000. And that could wreck your whole day. So, you know, I think that's part of it. A lot of the drone people are not business people, but uh, I think they're going to get an education here real soon um, on, you know, the seriousness of calling yourself a professional without the training. And we'll see how that goes. But that also, you know, segues us right back into uh, the topic for this show in your paper um, that we were talking about. And this was, uh, I, I think we're going to be in agreement on this, but, you know, the registration task force, let me just give you a little background on this. The, the people that were on the task force were warned. You know, I've been doing the, uh, you know, for disclosure, I've been doing the airspace integration thing uh, on a global level since probably about 2005. Um, I've worked with the Europeans with EuroK, and I've I've worked, uh, you know, to submitted things uh, for EASA and the FAA, and you know, we we've been working on this globally. Um, one one thing that the FAA and I'm sure regulators kind of around the world do this is they have an agenda. <laughs> yes. And when they when they set something like, like this up, they don't just like kind of, you know, stumble in and stumble through and, oh, you know, okay, well, we'll see what happens. They have a set agenda. They know what they want to do. And you have to, and they're cagey. You know, you kind of got to be watching them. So as this thing started to come along, some of the people from some of the larger drone manufacturers, consumer drone manufacturers, were warned months in advance that this was coming. Then they were warned once again. Oh, hey, you know, you might want to watch out. Are you sure you want to be on this thing? Because the FAA has an agenda. Then you have myself saying, hey, man, you better have your ducks in a row and you better have some evidence that supports your position. So and those are the those are the people that I know, you know, warned beforehand. So the task force comes along. Uh, It was kind of a. um, Let's say hastily thrown together thing as far as I was concerned. Um, and, and it was really put together and set up and they came to their conclusions and made the recommendations and what I would call record time. You know, it did look like that from the outside as well. Well, you know, uh, I, you know, I wasn't privy to the meetings, of course, and uh, I did hear some hearsay afterwards, whatever else. But my thing is, is look, you know, and I'd asked some of the people that had been on it, you know, it's. <laughs> For me, you know, if you're going to be on this thing, you have to, and and you're a stakeholder that's pro, you have to be kind of, let's say, on the same page as um, the rest of the people and what we want to get. And so I'm going to say that, you know, if we're going to row, it's going to be hard to row the walk of excellence together if half of the folks don't know what the heck's going on. (laughs) Uh, Yes, very true. So, you know, you have to have the right people on these on these uh these these things so 
you know, let's let's kind of delve into this a little bit because I started beating people up, and oh, like you know, let me just say, 2016 for me, Andrew, uh, is the year of intellectual honesty, and it's kind of been going over kind of like a Led Zeppelin over here in the United States. <laughs> people are not interested. It's made me a bigger pariah than I was before. Really? Oh, oh yeah. Nobody wants to hear any reality. Next year, it's unicorns and rainbows, but this year, I'm in the hot seat with intellectual honesty. <laughs> so I read through your white paper, and let me say I've shared your white paper with uh, the people at NASA, the people that are heading up the coalitions, the people that were on the uh, task force. I've sent this thing to, like, everybody. FAA, you got to read this because I think that you know I think that you brought up some good questions here. You know? Well, it's interesting. This is paper has the the readership of it has exceeded my wildest expectations. In two months, it had one, over one thousand downloads, um, and granted, probably half of those were from the United States, but right around the world. Uh, there's even been an inquiry from Indonesia to. Are asking for permission to translate the paper into Indonesian, so that it's it's available um, in in the the natural language over there. So I've been staggered at just the reception the paper has received. Well, I think it's testament to okay. So for the last since I've been involved in this um, effort, one of the big battle cries or big you know uh, regular cries is oh. We need data. We have to have data. And then so, you know, I kind of took it upon myself. I used to follow the FAA around the world. Hey, uh, you know, how's that data collection coming? You know, have you guys started collecting data? Well, no, not yet. Have you, you know, um, thought about the data you want to collect? Well, no, not yet. You know, well, you have anything scribbled on the back of a cocktail napkin? Well, no, not yet. So, <laughs> You know, it's maybe popular. I'm just asking questions. I mean, I don't know. You know, you say we need data. You think you could come up with something, you know. So uh, what I think that the paper does is it's more of a, a, a let's say, realistic and, and you know, uh, plausible uh, analysis of what's going on. Now, I mean, I uh, when I saw what was what was given to the stakeholders by the FAA, uh, I will say that I was uh, I was I was I was upset. I was really upset, and I was upset with their representation because I don't believe that the people understood what they were consenting to, and they did give the FAA consensus. And, you know, it was a slam-dunk deal, and it was done. But I read what was produced by MITRE, and it was basically went on the, uh, the Ministry of Defense uh, report, and then that's how they came up with the, the 250 grams, which I think is, you know, that's just insane. Yeah. Uh, um, one of the big things that, you know, I go, didn't anybody in the room jump up and say, you know, hey, has anybody heard of material density? <laughs> you know? Well, that, well that, that's right. And, and I think, too, that MITRE report needs to be read in the context that it was intended. And, and when I um, had a read through that, I was quite happy with the MITRE report, but it wasn't actually producing policy recommendations. It was looking at typical applications that would be in close, so like infrastructure inspection, that type of thing. Um, what would be the, the hazards there? Well, it's hazards to people on the ground if, if it crashes. And it provided an illustrative approach. 
my read of the report was that it wasn't trying to do a thorough in-depth analysis and that it wasn't trying to come out with specific policy recommendations as a result. But the last couple of pages of the report are, and this is the sort of approach you could adopt. Um, and, and that's as far as it went. Well, there was that, you know, how I felt or what I saw out of it is, is like, look, they wanted to do registration on everything. Okay. It's not really a secret. So usually how this deal works is you go out and find us, you know, there's this rock analogy where you find us a rock and we'll tell you which one we like. It's kind of what the FAA does. You bring the rock back. We don't like that rock. Get us another rock. So I think what they kind of said is, hey, we, you know, we got, we have to find a number, a baseline number. So go out and find us something. Now, the thing that, you know, kind of um, I didn't like is I did not like, and I, and I did talk to the woman from 3D Robotics about this. I said, they likened your product to shrapnel from an explosion. Okay? First off the bat, is that what you're producing and selling? Well, no, <laughs> that's not what we've got. But... So my thing would have been, I, you know, and I've talked to, I talked to the representative from DJI too. I would not have sat there. I would have said, okay, this is great. You know, if we were making bombs or shrapnel or whatever, then I'd say, hey, let's take this at face value. But it, this just doesn't relate to what we're talking about here. And until you have something that makes sense and is, you know, been done in a scientific method that relates to products that we're making, I can't sign off on any of this. And I'm sure you can understand that because, you know, we we do understand that there's a scientific method available to us as, as the 21st century people to, to vet some of these claims. Yeah, now, I, I guess um, I have to almost sort of sit on the fence on this one because you know, I did look at the MOD report and to me the that particular report was um, – the injury, I started by asking, where did this 80 kilojoules, 30% probability of fatality come from? That took me to the MOD report. I looked at that. Um, I couldn't see where they got their data from. Um, it was about explosion debris, which is not ideal, but it was also average body position. And I was interested in what's going to happen if this falls on your head. So I, I found some alternative data from the Swiss ultimately but again it, it's still armed forces data on what happens with with explosions and I, I think this is where the material density issue comes in quite important as well if you're being hit on the head with uh, the end of a carbon fiber boom then that might actually be reasonably approximated by some of this data but if you're being hit on the head by uh, a lightweight polystyrene wing that is quite frangible and it's going to break that's going to be quite a different and this is that whole material density frangibility uh, that's going to be quite a different issue so my paper does um suffer for want of a bit of a word of still utilising that armed forces data for lethality um, but then I go on to say well if it was non-lethal then let's look at this accident research um, which is primarily used um, s the impact of small blunt objects on skulls to see what's the uh, uh, what level of skull fracture and, and, and 
trauma will occur. Um, if I was to do the paper again, I'd actually like to remove entirely that um, forces set of data and and have a much larger data set of of that accident research. Right. Which well, could give the whole distribution of everything from fatality to to just a sore head. Right. And and you know, I'm not um I do think, you know, okay, so you, the argument could definitely be made is like, hey, we just don't know because we don't have the data, right? Fair enough. Yeah. But, you know, my thing, and, and this is another one of the drums that I've been banging, is I was on the small UAS arc back in 2008 and nine, and we had a, a bunch of gentlemen that were actual engineers from NASA were uh, part of the arc to support us. And they had actually came up with a whole test matrix and the idea was is that they would test um, unmanned aircraft of different sizes and construction. And again, I've been talking about frangible. I think some people don't understand what frangible means, but that's another story. Anyway, the idea was, this is back in 2008 9, is that they would use crash test dummies down there at NASA Langley and uh, you know do the tests with different types of materials that drones are constructed of to actually gather real data. Oh, that would be fantastic. Yes. Now let's, you know, we're, this is from the FAA. We're looking for data, right? You know, so anyway, the, te- the test matrix that the, the, the gentleman uh, from NASA came up with hit the garbage can. Nobody looked at it. Nobody did anything with it. I, years later, tried to get the, the, the small UAV coalition uh, members to fund the, um, the, the, the scientific research. And it was actually going to be kind of at a cut rate deal. I said, you know, we'll get some independent investigator. I was just going to be an observer, and we will actually get real-world data that we could put together. And if I was going to be involved, it had to be beyond reproach. It would be something that would have to please come and disprove us and give it to the universities to work with. And then you could go in with a credible set uh, data set and say, no, well, you know, your, your shrapnel thing is good. I like shrapnel. It's great when you're talking about explosions. But this is data that we have on subject matter we're talking about. And that then I would think, be just fantastic to have had that study completed. Yeah, whatever. We had, we had the time and people had the money. And I, I did beat up some of the OEMs on that one, too. You know, they'll send people around the world to take pictures that they could put on their website or on their Twitter feed, which I did say, you know, you could probably get those pictures for free on Instagram. But hey, whatever you want to do. I, my, my, one of the, the frustrations that I've had with this industry, and, and, and it even goes back to, if you remember at Heathrow, oh, there was almost a collision, and it turns out it was a plastic bag, so I go to the you know plastic bag manufacturers, the English bag manufacturers webpage, and they actually have scientific data and, and other studies that support their position as bag manufacturers. And I, <laughs> I, I go, here in the United States, you know, we, we, don't, even, we don't even have our act together. We got nothing. We got nothing. And That's it, remarkable. That really is remarkable given the world's perception of the United States is that everything is driven by liability and lawsuits uh, in a way that doesn't happen elsewhere in the world. And yet the UK has those studies, people fund their studies, and in the United States no one has. That That's truly remarkable. Well, they're going to, that, uh, that's going to, let's say that train's going to come in pulling into the station here. And, and that is, you know, after we uh, talk more about this, but the micro arc, you know, which is, which comes off of, of this product here. So 
All right, so we did talk about the material density. And I do think that material density, I mean, I would definitely rather be hitting the head with a 250-gram piece of plastic than a 250-gram piece of lead or steel. <laughs> I just want to you know, qualify it's, that you know, at absolutely. any speed. <laughs> right. Uh, that, that makes a big, big difference. How broadly is that energy distributed um, as a queer makes a big difference to how well your body can absorb it and, and as we mentioned frangibility, if you're hit by something that shatters on impact uh, most of the energy is dissipated in, in the shattering and then the pieces flying away rather than by whatever it's hitting. Exactly I mean you know anything, you know you could think of an aluminum beer can, you know you want to be hit by a whole aluminum beer can or do you want to hit by all of that aluminum in the tightest ball that it can, you know, it, yeah. it's really, it's a no brainer. I can't believe nobody brought it up. I mean, I even tweeted out about that, that I'm going to assume that Walmart didn't send an engineer, but you know, that's a, <laughs> I was going off. I was like barking mad on that deal. I was really upset um, about how that was handled. Now, the other thing we have to talk about, okay, you know, in your paper, you cited the assumed MTBF mean time between failure numbers that the task force uh, members came up with arbitrarily. Sat around the table. I mean, this is scientific to me, you know, right here. All right, you know, um, what do you guys think the mean time between failures are on your product? Well, you know, you know. Okay, let's go with 100 hours. 100 hours, 100 hours sounds good. That sounds scientific, you know, so. Oh, yeah. They've been out. You know, the, the government, this is another thing where I think they're totally whacked out, is uh, the government is, you know, they didn't want to do fund the, the research idea that I had because, you know, that's expensive, 50000 or 200000 is a lot of money. We don't want to spend that there. So we're going to let the government do the research. And I'm like, okay, this is, now the warning bells are really ringing when someone in the aviation community is like, eh, let the FAA do the research. They can pay for it, figure out what happens later. I'm like, oh, my God. All right, I got to get out of here because these people are crazy. Yeah, that's, that's, not, that's not a normal aviation reaction, is it? Uh, absolutely not. And, uh, you know, that was another thing that I uh, you know, tweeted out was the, the that skit from the, uh, what was it, the Holy Grail. You know, she's a witch. <laughs> and the guy in the crowd with the, the shaving foam, he's foaming at the mouth. It's all around his mouth. I'm like, that's how bad that is. Because that's not how aviation works. You do not let the FAA, uh, if you can, pick and choose the the data that they're going to collect. That's my my opinion. Well, that's a that's really the way it is in in most regulated industries. The regulated entities are the ones that want to collect the data to prove their position. If you leave it to the regulator, you can end up with an answer that that you don't actually like and, and isn't very good uh, and, and it can be hard to disprove it once the regulator's gone out and done all the collected the data that they want to prove their position exactly and my thing is this and I'm not saying like I'm not into junk science and that was the same thing with my um, let's say test regime that I wanted to do it's got to be 100% above board sniff test all the rest of that not doing any junk. 
Now, the only advantage as an industry of being doing paying for and funding the uh, objective research first is you get to ask the questions, and that's really all you're going to get. So the FAA is going to ask the questions, okay? Or people are going to ask the questions. Other people are going to ask the questions. So you really have no control. And then to try and come back as an industry and objectively disprove their findings, very hard to do very hard to do. Let's say you're going to have to spend probably two or three times, maybe five times the money that you could have spent up front. That, Absolutely. And that has been something that has dogged the American or the U.S. drone industry from day one. I've been ringing the bell for years. Hey, if we do this, we come up with this position, we start doing this, we get grassroots, we do this, we, we uh, you know, to start talking about these things, commercial uses, blah, blah, blah. This is the time when we can do it cheaply. And, uh, you know, there's been lots of laughing, whatever else. And we are where we are today. So, okay, so we have the 100 hours. And I noticed that you referenced the 100 hours in your paper. Okay. And that's great. You know, you got to have something, right? We got to figure that out. So, well, that's right. And it was a case of I had a look around and, and there was no data. It was no manufacturers had any data on the websites. Nobody referenced any failure rates. Well, and I had also suggested years ago that the manufacturers start torture testing their equipment and that the, the let's say that the, the notion, so there was, for a while there was a, oh, you know, I made a $500 UAV, you know, or whatever, which is, which is great. But the flight to economy instead of quality is not something that you usually see in aviation. Um, because, you know, the laws of physics apply here. You know, it's like if you make a, if you make like, remember that car they made in the Eastern block, the Lada or, you know. <laughs> oh, yes. So, you know, if it broke down, you know, okay, well, it pulls over to the side of the road, you know, uh, in the sky, if something breaks down, it falls out of the sky. It's physics, you know, and you're not getting away from that until, uh, I don't know when, you know. Uh, I'm not smart enough to figure out like the anti-grab thing, but uh, you know it doesn't exist right now. So it anyway. seems like it could be a wee way away. Hey, exactly. You know, who knows? Next week. Anyway, so the uh, so we had the hundred hours. Okay, so somebody goes out and FOIAs the research numbers from the work that's being done, uh, you know, funded by the government, and comes back. Lo and behold, the numbers are are down really at about seventy-four hours. Uh, between failures, which some people say, well, you know, 100 hours and 74 hours, there's not really that big of a difference. You're making a mountain out of a molehill. Well, I say, well, not really. That's, you know, we're talking double digits here. So that's going to, you know, and, and looking over your report, that's also going to kind of, in, let's say, erode the position of the drone industry. Agree? Disagree? Oh, absolutely agree. Um it's it's probably when you look at the numbers though 74 hours or 200 flights that is seems like it's probably about right uh, certainly uh, some of my clients um, interestingly enough the ones that fly small consumer drones never report that anything's gone wrong uh, the ones who fly big, big custom machines that have had uh, a lot more engineering um, go into them and are probably a lot more robust and safer than the consumer drones actually do report uh, a number of 
significant crashes. Um, and, and those numbers probably look about right. Well, you know, this is another thing that comes back. And, you know, as this, uh, let's say, technology has matured a little bit, there used to be in the, oh, it was a radio hit, man. Oh, you know, and it crashed. And let me just, you know, I got to qualify this too. I never crash. I, uh, I only have aborted takeoffs and uh, unscheduled landings, personally. <laughs> but, uh, you know, other people I know have crashed. Um, and it does happen, and it could be weather-related, or it could be, you know, it is hard to understand what's going on in a three-dimensional space, especially at a, at a distance, and where objects are in that space with the human eye. So um, another thing that I've said with that is you say, okay, well, you know, there's there's uh, people bandied about different uh, cost to sales, let's say, for hourly to use these in different, um, let's say, industries. And one of them, a gentleman was, oh, I'm going to do the self or the uh, solar panel inspections with the uh, thermal camera. And that, mm-hmm. you know, that sounds good. You know, we can see uh, what the efficiency is. And they also do it for uh, uh, efficiency for heating and air conditioning and whatever else. And he figures, well, I got to buy the equipment. I need to make X dollars an hour. I got the insurance, yada, yada. I need $400 an hour. Okay. Now, have you factored in the MTBF numbers? Because that's going to be another cost to sales that either your your insurance uh, agent is going to have to pick up or um, somebody's going to have to pick this up. So you may want to start figuring this into your cost to sales. And now I do know people that have uh, more than 100 hours on certain systems. I'm not saying that, you know, that's not how the meantime between failures works. It's not you're guaranteed at 74 hours you're going to crash or uh, have a mishap. However, um, I think that that is something that people are going to realize as this industry starts to, uh, no pun intended, take off. And certain insurance companies are going to be like, you know what, we're not insuring that manufacturer's uh, product because it's just not reliable, either hardware or software. Yeah. Your thoughts on that one? Um, I, I think that's that's very true. And I was just thinking as you said that, it's actually really difficult for uh, the regulator to capture that sort of data. We would like everyone to report their their crashes and their near misses and everything to, to the FAA um, or... or or, the regu- or maybe even to NASA, so that a better picture could be built up. But it's just not going to happen. And uh, I think the insurance companies are the ones who are going to probably build a better picture of reliability of different manufacturers and systems. Um, but, yeah, if you're assuming that you are going to get 500 hours or something like that out of a... Uh, a drone and you're only going to get on average 74 before it crashes and you need to do a major rebuild uh, your profitability numbers might be well out exactly and um, you know so I think there's going to be people will have to get their sea legs with that and it depends on the sensor you know I mean I've been at demonstrations where people oh you know we want to fly this $100,000 LIDAR you know or whatever and they had a mishap like oh my god you know you'll never get insurance again if you had that sensor on there you know um so i think we'll 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 see these teething uh, problems as we move forward and i agree with you i mean the insurance industry those guys know where the bones are buried 
they're the ones with 